Thank you for listening to this message from Two Rivers Church in Cooper City, Florida. We exist to saturate South Florida and beyond with the hope of Jesus Christ. Now sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy the message. It's amazing every time I look at God's Word, and I love it because it is so alive, and it speaks to us exactly where we are in life. It speaks to us oftentimes exactly where we are in society in this time, because the way James says it is that it is like a mirror. When you look into the Word of God, it's like staring into a mirror. That if you hear it and do what it says, it's like uh, it's the perfect laws of liberty. It frees you, but if you hear it and you don't do it, it's, it's like you walked away from the mirror and forgot what you looked like. And it says your religion deceives yourself. So I love looking at the Bible because it's, it's a mirror. And so when I approach this story and I'm reading this and what God began to stir in me is the location of what's going on at the times. Jeremiah is in a deteriorating city. The city he's in is deteriorating. The condition of his city is that it has come under siege by the Babylonian army. They are surrounding his city. And one thing that happens when you're under siege in these scenarios, and we kind of talked about it, about another warring scenario when we talked last week, is that the enemy cuts off supply lines. He cuts off the food lines. He cuts off the water lines in hope that inside the city there will be starvation. And that starvation will cause those within the city to kind of crumble and buckle and come out and surrender. And so that's the plan of the enemy there. And Jeremiah is now prophesying. Listen, if you want to live, you have to change the things you're doing. You have to change the way you're approaching this battle. You can't stand here and fight the way you've always fought. In fact, what you need to do is go and surrender yourselves to the, to the Babylonian army, and they will let you live. And that's the way you'll survive this. If you stay in the city, he says, you're going to die by sword, by famine, and by sickness. And so he's prophesying this, and you would think that people would listen to him. Because just a few chapters ago, he's prophesying on, on the, same, the same army and the same attack, and his prophecy came to pass, and it was victorious for the people. And you would think that people would be excited that they heard truth, they saw it manifest, and now he's speaking again, we should give him some attention. But what's happened this time is his message is unpopular. Last time he prophesied victory, and this time he prophesied changing. And so his message became very unpopular. And what the... Other princes did, there were four princes that go to the king, and they say to the king, we have to kill him. We have to shut him up. The words he is using, they're discouraging the people. They're discouraging the men who can fight. They're discouraging those that we have left who are ready for war, and therefore we have to kill him and we have to silence him. At the same time he's prophesying this, there's another group that's prophesying also. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll see there were many prophets that would come and give a word. And the Bible says in chapter 28 of Jeremiah that Hananiah was also prophesying. The difference between Jeremiah's prophecies and Hananiah's prophecies is Hananiah's prophecies were this. God's going to give the Babylonians over to you. He's going to break the yoke off of, off of them and do this and do that. And he was prophesying a very popular message. And it tickled the ears of the people. And so what he was doing was he was he was giving one tune. His prophecy was everything's going to be all right. While Jeremiah's prophecy was you better change or God's going to do this. And then I look at the condition of America. I look at the condition of the churches in America. I look at the condition of what we call the bride of Christ and our city that we live in and the world that we live in. And we see the same exact attack. The enemy is he, is, he showed his hand all throughout history and has never changed his attack. We see a deteriorating city. 
we see a city that is under attack by the enemy, a world that is under attack by the enemy, that things have begun to go downhill. And it is the exact same tactic that the enemy has always used. Surround the whole scenario and cut off the supply lines. If we can cut off the food, if we can make people so busy, if we can keep people so distracted that they don't have time to get a word, that they don't have time to get in God's word and we can starve them out. If we can cut off the water lines, if we can pervert the way they worship, you know, maybe they went to that church, maybe they gave their life to Christ, maybe they're doing this thing. But if we can pervert the way they see the things of God so they do it inadequately, we can dry them up. And at the point of starvation, at their weakest moment, we can get them to surrender. And that's what happens to a lot of us who come into Christ. We come into the body, but then we starve ourselves out. And at a weak moment, we get pulled back in and we give in to that thing we run away from. And so this is the enemy's tactic. We're in a world where providing for yourself in this interrogating world, where providing for yourself is the main focus of everyone's life, where we get consumed with money, where uh, our jobs and things, and I say this all the time, will pull us away from our family. We are in a world where with the advances of technology, we would think the world would be increasing in a great manner. But what has happened a lot of times is we have become slaves to this four inch box. And we call a telephone that gives us the opportunity to ignore everyone around us. I was in the elevator the other day um, at, at our office and I get in there and uh, I go and I hit the button. I'm going down. And then it stops on the second floor. Guy comes in, he walks in, hey, sits at the door, and this is what he does. We got one floor to go. We're only going down one more floor. He could not withstand 45 seconds in an elevator with another individual without having to let me know without saying a word, I don't want to talk to you. This is what we do. This advance in technology, whether it be this four inch box or the 40 inch box you have in your living room that keeps you locked away and not connecting to people. What, it, what, what these things do is they give us the opportunity to at our fingertips give way to different sin and give way to different compromises because now we can have uh, lustful things or, or porn or bad relationships or affairs and conversations with people we shouldn't be in conversations with all at our fingertips. And we feel like it's okay because we got a password on our phone and no one else will see it because we only see it. The advances of technology as far as the way that we do construction also deteriorate the community that we live in. It's a little different what I've seen so far here in Florida, but the neighborhood I've moved out of in Georgia, you know they don't put sidewalks in the subdivisions. How's it, you know, come on, say wow. wow. Yeah, right? They don't, <laughs> They don't put sidewalks. What is this no sidewalk stuff, right? The only sidewalks in the subdivision I moved out of went from my front door to my driveway. Went from my front door to my driveway, which says don't get to know your neighbors. The houses are built similar here as they are there. As you drive into your drive, you drive into your garage. There is a door now from your garage to your kitchen or some other room in the house. So that as you get out of your car, you can hit that button and walk in your house without ever running into a neighbor. Technology, the things that we have done to build our personal comfort have broken down and attacked the things of the kingdom. And so we operate in this deteriorating society and now we, we move away from terms like the truth to terms like your truth. That we no longer can stand on this is the truth, 
This is what's right. This is what God said. Now it's, well, if you believe that, then that's true for you. This is what I believe. It must be true for me. And we move around and we maneuver in this deteriorating society. The message, then the truth becomes wildly unpopular. And when you start telling the truth about things, it becomes wildly unpopular. And people don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear what you have to say. They don't want to hear that these same truths that we're talking about 50 years ago influenced government. They influenced our school systems. They caused marches for things that were wrong 50 years ago. 50 years later, these same truths are persecuted and banned from our government. They are banned from our schools. And marches are stood up to raise against this. 50 years later, because these truths are unpopular. So what happens is now we adapt, and we've adapted the message with regards to these attacks. We've adapted the message with regards to our deteriorating communities, and, and we don't want to end up like Jeremiah. We want to end up in a better state and position for ourselves and our family. And this is dangerous for the church. Because it's at this moment that people become silent on the truth. It's at this, at this moment that people begin to sit on their hands when it comes to the things of God. And so you see, you can go into a certain church, and a lot of churches across America, um, and there's a silence when it comes to the things like repentance. There's a silence on things when it comes to things like deliverance. There's a silence when it comes to things like the gifts of the Spirit. There's a silence when it comes to things like the returning of Christ or the blood of Jesus and him coming back for a, a bride without a spot or wrinkle. When is the last time you heard a message of the returning of our coming king that's going to pull us out of here and why we're in such an urgent state right now? If there's a silence on these things. There's a silence on living life as a giver. Don't challenge anyone. You know, as a man, there's two things you better not talk about. My family and your money. It ain't your business. That's what we say, right? So there's a silence when it comes to challenging in the areas of living life as a giver, a giver of all, a giver of my possessions, a giver of my time, and a giver of my talent. There's a silence when challenging people to step out of what's comfortable for them. There's a silence when you start talking about the cost to truly love others. What it costs to really love others. What you have to give to really show love and not say love. It comes a silence. And there's a silence in our responsibility to others in God's kingdom. But there is a message out there on the other side that everything's going to be all right. That it's going to get better for you. That every, it's all hope, hope, hope. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. God's grace covers all. But there's a silence then when it comes to certain truths because they're wildly unpopular. And the truth of God gets treated like Jeremiah and disregarded and thrown away and not considered. And the crazy thing is you would think that these princes were actually for Jeremiah. You would think that, that these people would all be on the same team. Let me read this to you. These princes who came to accuse Jeremiah, one's name is Shephatiah, which means Jehovah has judged. One's name is Gedaliah, which means Jehovah is great. One's name is Shelemiah, which means I'm repaid by Jehovah. And the next one's name is Pashtun, which means freedom. You would think that these men are doing the will of God. You would think that there would be excitement when they hear a prophecy from God. Which means everything that looks godly is not. And everyone who looks like they have it together does not. 
There's a reason the Bible warns us to walk not in the counsel of the wicked. Be careful when you have wicked hearts dressed up in godly garments. Because that happens. There's a reason why Jesus was hungry and he looks across while he's walking and he sees a fig tree and he goes to it to get fruit. When he got there, what happened? There was no fruit and he cursed the tree. From a distance, the tree had the appearance of bearing fruit. From a distance, the tree looked healthy. From a distance, the tree looked like it could provide what was needed. But when you get closer, you find out that just because it carries its Bible and just because it holds a door for you and just because it takes your phone call and says, I love you, does not mean that it's fruitful. And so it's very careful who you let have your ear. It's very, you have to be very careful because these men... Now they want to uh, parade as though they have it together, like they have this exclusive relationship with God, and their stuff is just a mess. What they've done is they've convinced this king to disregard God's word. So here's the condition that their city is in. There is a king under attack. He got a word from God, and he was close to the prophet. Before people came in and convinced him, he shouldn't listen to it. So he disregarded it and put it away, and now his city's in trouble. Enter Abedmelech. Enter Abedmelech. Abedmelech, um, the freedom of Jeremiah and his reconnection with this king is dependent on Abedmelech. Now let me give you uh, some, some info on Abedmelech, because this is where this story turns for me. This is where we're talking about one. Today, just so you know, I'm talking about the one that God chose. I'm talking about the one that God qualified. I'm talking about the one that God uses. Abedmelech, his name, Abed in the Hebrew means slave. Melech in the Hebrew means the king. So his name means the king's slave or the king's servant. So we don't even really know this man's name. We just know who he was. He was the king's slave. So one, he's a slave. The second thing it says about him is he's an Ethiopian. They're not in Ethiopia. He's a foreigner. This is not his land. He doesn't belong in it. He doesn't have any ownership because he's a slave. And so he's got two strikes against him already. The third thing about this man is he's a eunuch, which means he has been mutilated by men for their own purposes. Men have, have felt threatened by him, but wanted to use him to better their own purposes. So in order to trust him, they had to beat him down and mutilate him and keep him in a position to control him. And so this is where he's at. This is the man that walks up right here, and he wasn't born this way. He was made this way. So then I look at us because we've all been there. We've all been in some form of bondage at some point in time. We've all dealt with this very thing, be it from someone's story is from addiction to someone else's is unforgiveness. Someone else's bondage may have been selfishness or lust. Someone else's bondage may have been fear. Someone else may have had a bondage of, uh, of just um, of gossip and being just oppressed by depression possibly. And we've all had some form of bondage where, where it has cost us certain ownership, where God has wanted to give us things, where relationships should have been better, where things that we were working with in our lives that we were entitled to, we walked away from and we lost them. And we lost them because of that. You see, the Bible says in Galatians 4, it says that an heir, which is us, we are all the heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, the Bible says. But in Galatians 4, it makes this point that an heir, while he is still a child, differs nothing than a slave, though he be Lord of all. 
And so what happens is if we don't mature in some things, we stay in bondage because what it says in Galatians 4 is that child then, that, that child is set into appointed times by, until, by, excuse me, to governors till appointed times by the father, which means now you're bound by certain things. And there's things that God wants to give you that you're entitled to that are your natural inheritance. But because the position that you're in has been one of a slave, you're held up and those things aren't coming to you. Because different times in your life you decided that you choose this bondage over freedom, you lost some things in your life. It cost you something. As well, we've all been through some other scenario where, where we feel like we don't fit in. We feel like we don't belong. We feel like the things we say will get us cast out and we're trying to find our place. And then we've all been in a place, I'm sure, where we've been cut down by men, chopped down by men, beat up by men, and the things that they have to say about us or do to us until we get to a position where we're being used by people and we're being misused by people. And people have done this just to control us or get things done for them, but then when you need them, they're nowhere. This is the position of this man. And we can use this stuff as an excuse or a crutch. We can use our past as an excuse or a crutch to stay exactly where we are. Or we can do what he did and step up and say, I'm here for a purpose. That no matter what has happened before me, that no matter what has been done to me, that I've been called and I've been created and it has been put in me to do the impossible. Understand this. It is in you to do the impossible. You were created to do the impossible. You were made with the ability to perform the impossible. You were made in God's image. When you were born, you were born with, with bone structure, muscles, and all that, but you were weak. You were weak. But over time, without anyone telling you, you couldn't walk, you couldn't do anything, you couldn't do this, without anyone telling you, over time, you started kicking around in your crib. You'd get over to the side and you'd push and pull, and you'd kick on things, and when you sit in your daddy's lap and you push and try to stand up, and you're strengthening your legs, and you're strengthening your arms. That just a few short months ago, you couldn't walk at all. And without anyone ever telling you anything, you began to walk. You began to do the impossible. And it didn't matter that you crapped in your pants yesterday, right? It didn't matter that you spit throw up all over your, your mom's shoulder. And she was mad that she had to change her clothes because she was on her way out the door. It didn't matter that when dad was trying to change her, you peed on him, right? Parents know exactly what I'm talking about. It didn't matter that you had really blown it. You blew the schedule. You blew everything as far as that goes. But you know what? Today you started walking. It didn't matter what happened yesterday. When you started, when you were born, you, you, you couldn't even barely move your mouth. And so all the sound that came out of your body came from the back of your throat, from forced air through your, through, through your throat. But then you started moving your lips around and, and eating and right and blowing spit bubbles and 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 then you began to get a little control of your tongue and your mouth and without ever any going to a speech class what was mute one day talk the next without anyone telling you you were created to do impossible things problem is when did we outgrow doing the impossible when did we start looking at our past as something that disqualifies us doing the impossible tomorrow I love it when, when God comes in the garden and finds Adam hiding behind a tree and he says, what are you doing? And he's like, I hid from you because I'm naked. God asks this question, who told you that? Who told you that that condition should have you move away from me? Who told you that that was unforgivable? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you wouldn't make it? Who told you you were a loser? Who told you you were a failure? Who told you that this should move you out? Who told you that? We're created to do the impossible. 
Abedmelech could have betrayed at this time. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a, he was a master at warfare. And what he would do is he would offer rewards and he would offer a great life to all the slaves that were in the kingdom because what that would do is it would raise up an insurrection inside the camp. That if the slaves knew that they had it better with the other team, that they wouldn't fight for where they were staying. In fact, they would defect. And so Nebuchadnezzar had a choice. I mean, Abedmelech had a choice. I can go to Nebuchadnezzar or I can go to the king. This is a choice a lot of us end up at. I can surrender right now and things will get easier for me. If I don't go to the church anymore, then it's easy for me to decide whether I'm gonna, I don't have to give an offering or give it a tithe. Times are hard anyway. If I don't go to the church anymore, I don't have to serve at the door and I don't have to forgive people and I don't have to love people and, and I can just sit here and be mad if I want to. If I don't go and get in God's word anymore, then I can just kick up with my old friends and have a drink and wash away my sorrows. That's a choice. But then there's going to the king. We can get to the king. You see, this is a picture that I love because other men couldn't get to the king. There were free men outside the castle gates that didn't know where the king was or how to get there, but a slave, a eunuch, a foreigner knew how to get to the king. And he gets to the king and he tells the king, hey, this is wrong. We need to get this. You need to get back to the word. We need to get the word back up in this thing. What you're doing is wrong. And what the Bible says the king does, he looks at him and he says, take with you 30 men. And this blows my mind because at this point, this is where the world disqualifies us. This is where we say, look at this man's past. Where does he get to become a leader? How does this slave now lead 30 free men? How does this slave now lead a team of people? How does this eunuch, how does this foreigner step to the head of his class? How is it that with us, as unqualified as we are, God will put us around people that have better degrees than us, better education than us, that have more money than us, that have a better background than us, that look down at us at one point, but then put us in a position to lead? It's amazing when you look around at the people you get to minister to every day at your job or at your school or wherever, and you look and you feel like they should be telling you something, but they're coming to you for advice. This slave now is leading 30 free men. He gets there to get Jeremiah. Before he goes, he goes to, to the Bible says, underneath the treasury, there's a room. Now, here's the thing. The king gave him men, but he didn't give him resources. Because God's not going to give you everything. Because God qualifies you. Because this man had a hurt background, because he had come from somewhere in his low position, no matter what it was, that he's been through something, that God qualified him in that area, he knew of things that people who had never gone through anything didn't know. You see, these, a prince couldn't go figure out where to get stuff to get him out because they, they had never been through this thing that Abedmelech had been through. There was a, a, a custom that when you go to a king, you go to a king from another kingdom, you bring gifts, you bring an offering, you bring silk, you bring linen, you bring garments, you give it as an offering. Well, after a while, these linens, these silks, these garments, they get holes in them from the moths that would eat them in the treasury. So they take it out of the treasury because it's no longer befitting a king and they throw it beneath the treasury in the dump. But because of Abedmelech's conditioning, because of what he'd been through in his life, he knew exactly where to go. He knew how to get creative to do a thing for God when he felt like he was discounted. And he was able to pull out these things that were able to reconnect the word of God to a king who needed it. 
Who qualified this man? Here's the thing for me. Let me tell you about the one God qualified. And this is the pinnacle of everything I want to say today. Let me tell you about the one that God qualified. You. That God qualified you. That no matter what your background, high or low, no matter what you went through yesterday, no matter what your struggle has been, that the qualification doesn't come from anyone else sitting in this room. It doesn't come from this stage. It doesn't come from your friend that you brought with you. It comes exclusively from God to you. In Matthew 11, Jesus makes a statement. He says, of all the prophets of everyone ever born, of all the prophets who ever prophesied, none was greater than John the Baptist. None was greater than John the Baptist. He says, but the least in the kingdom is greater than him. Are you one of the least in the kingdom? That's a question. Would you say you're one of the least in the kingdom? I would say that about myself. Then the Bible says then we're better, we're greater than John the Baptist. And it's a big thing when God says that there was no prophet that's greater than John the Baptist that ever lived because Elijah called fire down from heaven. And Daniel established a reign in Babylon like no, no one had ever known. And Moses led Israel out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea. And Noah built this huge ark that floated and saved the entire world. But none of them were greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in God's kingdom is greater than him. That means that you and me are greater than everyone we've read about if we'll submit to God's word. That means that you and me have been qualified in a place that the men that we read about have never been even given the opportunity because they weren't able to be empowered by Jesus or his Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit of God came on them. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And so while we sing how great they were, sometimes we forget about how great God made us. And all through the Bible, we see where people have tried to disqualify regular people like you and like me. To where we really believe it, to where uh, we're grasshoppers in their sight because we're grasshoppers in our own sight. You see, there was a, a, a woman that came to Jesus to pour oil on his feet and, and wipe with her hair and all of this. And the room said, if he knew what manner of woman this was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. They disqualified her. There was a woman that was caught in adultery that they dragged before Jesus and threw her at his feet and said, what's to be done with this woman? The law says she should be stoned. She's disqualified. You see, it's a dangerous thing when the church calls for condemnation at the feet of Jesus. That we want to justify people's downfall and justify people's uh, uh, kicking out or kicking down or, or, or being beat up because scripture says this and scripture says that. There was a prodigal son that went out and disqualified himself by the looks of things. But the minute he came back and he struggled the whole way back and he said, I'm going to say this to my dad when I get back, that maybe I can just be a slave in his house. Uh, and he practiced that. Forgive me. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. And, I'm gonna, and he practiced this the whole way home. But when his father saw him, he ran from the porch, which was dishonor for a man to run in that time. 
And he just took himself out of a position of honor to bring his son a fatted calf and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and the best robe on his back and requalify him. And even in that story, his own brother said, what is it that you do this for this one? Disqualified all through scripture. They even tried to disqualify Jesus, our king, our savior. They said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They looked at him, they said, show us a sign. One looked at him on the cross next to him and said, if you're the son of God, get down from here. They looked at him up at the cross and said, you can heal all these people, but you can't even heal yourself. They looked at Jesus and they called him a wine bibber and they said, he eats and he drinks with sinners. They said, he's possessed with a demon. That's how he does these works. In fact, he heals a man that was born blind. He does it in a church service on the Sabbath. And they're like, oh no, you don't heal in here. You don't do that in here. Then they began to inter interrogate the one who was healed and they said to him, where is this man? Who did it? He said, I don't know. He said, it was a man, he prayed for me and this, that, and the other. And they said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And they began to disqualify Jesus. And this man said, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I know is I was blind, but now I see. This is always a tough message, as encouraging as you can try to make it because you're fighting against the people you're trying to encourage to tell them God has qualified you. Fighting against the past of those who are listening to convince you God has qualified you. That Jesus said, they hate you, they hated me also. And he says they try to disqualify me also. But if you would just step out there, you could bring healing to somebody. And whether you're a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. Is that I was hurting and now I'm healed. Is that I was alone and now I'm in a family, I'm in a body. Doesn't matter whether you're this or whether you're that or whether this or that. What matters is who did God qualify? See, the Bible says we are a chosen generation, that we are a royal priesthood. The Bible says that we've been called and qualified. I love when scripture confronts me, but then I love when it puts me in my place. It's a good and bad thing to be put in your place. Because sometimes it says humble yourself. You're out of place. But sometimes it says lift your head up. Here's a place that I placed you. And we know that in all things, God is working these things together for our good because we love him and are called according to his purpose. Because we know that what he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That he, he would be a firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And we know that who he foreknew, he also predestined. And who he predestined, he also called. And who he called, he also justified. And who he justified, he also glorified. So what then do we say to these things? If God be for us, 
Who can be against us? If he would not spare his own son, but would give him, how much more graciously would he give us all good things? Then who is he who brings a charge against the one whom God has chose? It is God himself who justifies. Then who is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says about us. And if we could just step over ourselves, that is not really us anyway, but what the world has convinced us we should be. By what possibly people in our ear have convinced us we could be. By possibly what people who have misused us and hurt us to keep us in a position for their purposes have convinced us we can be. Then we can really be the one, no matter what our history, no matter what our condition, no matter what our conditioning and past, can be one who brings back the power of the word of God into the ear of someone who needs to hear it in a deteriorating society. Thank you for listening. For more messages, you can visit us online at tworiverschurch.tv.